0: It's good to have you with us this morning at Blue Valley. Uh, I'm addressing two groups, uh, well, one group of people, uh, but, uh, but really multiple facets. You are the people whose lives are boring enough that you don't have spring break vacation, right? Is that what that's right? And then second, everybody's tired because the government stole an hour of sleep from them last night, Right. And so because of that, I'm going to preach for an hour and a half. Uh, No, I'm not. I won't do that. This is uh, my most daunting preaching assignment all year long, the day of time change, but we'll try to weather our way through it. Uh, Part of the reason I'm able to weather my way through it is because Julie and I are headed for a little warm weather R&R starting Friday, and uh, Lord willing, I will wake up someplace warm next Sunday morning and be very, very, very happy about it. We're at the stage of life with our kids being gone, having raised our family, where Julie and I are able to travel more than we've ever been able to travel before. And in this age of increased travel in our family, I have noticed that there are three stages of preparation for our trip as it pertains to my wife. The first is what I would call uh, the Google phase, and that is where she researches online uh, all of the places that we're going, but in particular... She researches what she might need in those places uh, that we are going, which then gives way to the second stage, what I call the Amazon stage, where uh, various boxes from Amazon begin to arrive at our door with all of the necessary items to fully enjoy wherever it is we happen to be going. And the final stage, uh, a stage which we've been in now for several days, uh, dare I say even weeks, is what I call and know as the packing stage where she will list on a sheet of paper all of the things that she's going to wear by day and begin to pack them. It takes over a room in our house. I'm, ki- I'm not kidding. It takes over a room in our house, but she's in there, and she's folding, and she's stacking, and she's preparing. Now, it should be noted <clears throat> that at this stage, I generally give her great anxiety uh, because while she takes weeks to prepare, um, if I'm feeling super motivated Friday morning uh, before our flight Friday afternoon, I will begin to pack. But it should also be noted that I'm widely known for forgetting uh, items uh, that I should uh, take. And, and, you know, toothpaste uh, and toothbrushes, that's, that's beginner stuff. I mean, I'm talking… I'm talking… I've forgotten, I kid you not. I, one time, I, every shirt I needed, no pants. I packed no pants uh, for my trip. We had to stop and buy me pants Uh, for our trip. And then, and I don't know how to say this uh, in a delicate way, but uh, I didn't pack what you wear under your pants uh, one time. And how I solved that is Lynch family legend and everybody who's aware of it has been sworn to secrecy. The bottom line is that Julie is always ready to go. And I always think that I'm ready to go. But many times I'm not ready to go. All right? So... With that introduction, I'm not going to say something, is how's this going to fit? Uh, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4, Exodus chapter 4, verse 18. <clears throat> Last week, we spent some time looking at the moment that changed everything, everything for Moses. The moment that God appeared to him in a burning but not consumed bush and gave him his life's work, he is to go back to Pharaoh in Egypt, the most powerful man in the world, and demand that Pharaoh release his slave force, which actually are the people who belong to God and they are to leave Egypt forever with Moses. It took some persistence from God to convince Moses to do this because Moses, as we saw last week, was riddled with self-doubt. But God prevailed, and Moses commits somewhat half-heartedly to the task, and today we will find him setting out somewhat half-heartedly for his God-given destiny, and we'll learn from what we see what needs to be on our radar as we go in God's name to do God's work. And let me just say for a moment, maybe you think that's not something that's really expected of you. You're a regular person. You're not a transcendent leader like Moses. You're not someone gifted and skilled in the areas of leadership of, of whose exploits are going to be shared for thousands and thousand years. You're just a normal person. But, but listen, that's who God uses. We saw that Moses was just a goat herder before God got a hold of him. God just uses normal people. It is normal people who serve as pastors. It is normal people who serve as elders and deacons. It is normal people who serve in Sunday school and who serve in all of the rather anonymous uh, ministries of of church life. It's normal people who God chooses to use. Every single one of us then have a call from God to go every one of us do. And maybe we've never considered that was the fact, but Scripture makes clear that all of us have a call to go in God's name and build God's kingdom. Some of us will have more visible ministries than others will have, but all of us have the same basic call, to go, to glorify Him, and to make Him known. And so... Students, this is what you're doing when you reach out to the kid that's being marginalized and le- left out. That's what many of our students are doing today when they have gone over to our church plant Overflow in Martin City to help them with child care today to give their people who are in uh, preschool ministry a break. Mom, this is what you're doing When you're intentionally discipling your children, you're going in God's name to build God's kingdom. Dad, this is what you were doing when you were serving your wife and your children sacrificially. Empty nester, this is what you were doing when you are impressed to mentor a young couple. Retiree, this is what you're doing when you're using your retirement to build into the life of the church and to spread the gospel. Again, I just want to say... All of us have a call to go, and all of us need to keep in mind some principles that we see in Moses' life as we go. The first one being this. You can't go in God's name to build God's kingdom in doubt. Now, remember, when God had called Moses uh, from the burning bush. Moses had a reluctance to go, and, and that reluctance wasn't born of obstinance. He wasn't just being stubborn or lazy. As I've already mentioned, he's just riddled with self doubt. Every objection to what God is asking Moses to do comes from a sense of inadequacy. Who am I? He asked. Who are you? He asked. How will they ever believe me? He asked over and over again. And when Moses finally does go, it's not because his doubts have been alleviated. He goes because he realizes he has no choice. I mean, he's just a go-erder, and this is God. He's gotta go which explains his interaction with his father-in-law in verse 18. Look at this. Moses went back to Jethro's father-in-law and said to him, "Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and then note this to see whether they're still alive." And Jethro said to Moses, "Go in peace." Moses isn't shooting straight with his father-in-law, is he? Now probably not the first dude to do that, but He's not shooting straight with his father-in-law. God hasn't told him to go back to Egypt to see if his brothers, and probably it means here countrymen, are still alive. God knows they're alive. He's told Moses that they're alive. We're, we see that that he's heard their affliction. So why has Moses just lied about his mission? And that's what he's doing. He's lying about his mission, which may bother you because you think everybody's in the scripture's perfect. You just need to read it more. They're not, they're not saints. Moses has just lied about his mission. Why has he d- done this? Well, I just want you to think from a very human level what it would have meant for him to tell the truth. Hey, father-in-law, I was out in the wilderness, tending the flocks, saw a bush on fire, wasn't being consumed. I went to check it out. A voice from the bush began to speak to me. It began to tell me I was supposed to go to the most powerful man in the world and say, you need to relief your, uh, release your slave force who belonged to God To me, goat herder, so that I can take them off in the wilderness for you to never see again so that they can worship their God. And to prove that the voice speaking to me was God, he took my stick, he turned it into a snake, turned it back again. Took my hand, turned it leprous, turned it back again. So I'm taking your daughter and your grandkids, and we'll be back soon, (laughs) okay, okay? father-in-law says, maybe you've been out in the sun too long. How about you take a seat? How about you get a cool drink of water? That's a very human thing that he's doing. But I think there's more to it than that. I think it's not just because of how it sounds to his father-in-law. I think it's because Moses still doubts the whole thing. Again, he, he didn't say, yes, God, you're right. God says, enough of your talking, Go. And so he does. So he still doubts the whole thing. And, and, and specifically, he still doubts God. Now, that's not a recipe for success. But I want you to know what God does. Look at verse 19. "'And the Lord said to Moses in Media,' and Midian, this is still in the land of his father-in-law, "'Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead.'" So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, and they went back to the land of Egypt.'" And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Two things there. First of all, he, he speaks to Moses' worries. Uh, that, Am I going to live through this? And he says, the men who wanted you dead are dead. And then Moses takes the staff, which represents the power and the presence of God with him. What is God doing? God is reassuring Moses. He's saying, I've got this. You can trust me. I will be with you. And he does it again. Look at verse 21. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. And so he says what actually winds up happening, you need to go. But listen Listen to how he encourages him here. He says you need to go, but you need to understand it is going to be hard. I'm going to be with you, but it is going to be Difficult. Sometimes we have to be encouraged to persevere by being told in advance how hard the thing that we are about to do will be. As you know, last month my dermatologist prescribed me a cream to apply to my face in order to deal with some pre spot and some sun damage. Uh, I was in the throes of that Super Bowl Sunday when they took my video and put it on the Ridgeview campus that day. Everybody laughed because they thought I'd painted my face. I kid you not. It was that bright red. And Pastor Jonathan says, what does it say about you that they thought you painted your face? I, I don't know. I think something pretty good, frankly. I don't know. But, but you know, I had to put all this on my face. And at the outset, my dermatologist says, you're not going to like this. It's going to hurt. You're going to be miserable. She showed me pictures on her phone of what I could expect. Why did she do this? She did this because the chief threat to the treatment itself is patients giving up because it's so uncomfortable. So in order to get me to follow through, she pulled no punches and told me it would be rough, and that helped me complete the treatment. That's what God is doing in the last three verses I just read. He's undergirding Moses' doubt with equal doses of compassion. I'm going to be with you. But also to let him know Pharaoh's not going to let this go easily because you can't go in full obedience if you are unclear as to the obstacles in front of you, and you can't face those obstacles if you're still riddled with doubt. And so the question for us and our own task to go is, how do we gain this kind of comfort from God in our own calls to go? And it's, it's this simple, but it's this hard. We all have to be in a deep and abiding relationship with God. Ours is the kind of God who provides us what we need, not in some magic gift from heaven. God provides us what we need to do His work in Himself. He gives us Himself. This is the sentiment behind the psalmist's words in Psalm 36, 7 and 9, where he writes, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on, your, uh, on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Moses was giving, God was giving Moses exactly what he needed to overcome his doubts in giving him himself. And he will do the same thing for us in the doubts that we face about what he is asking us to do, but it will require us to do what the psalmist is exhorting people to do, to take refuge in the shadow of His wings, to delight in the abundance of the Lord's house, to drink deeply from His delights. And that cannot be achieved with five minutes of a shot-out prayer to God on your way out the door in the morning. That cannot be achieved by uh, saying a a few, God be with me and help me live through the day moments at your desk when you arrive at work. And it also cannot be done with a 30-minute devotion with the Lord at your house that you forget about completely when you walk out the door. God is calling us to the depths of himself and getting there requires a serious-minded, passionate pursuit of God and a moment-by-moment awareness of his presence and his activity throughout our day. This is... Why are D groups at Blue Valley exist? And we'll talk about that more in a moment if you're interested in learning more, but the bottom line of those groups and what we are being told here is that if we have doubts about the character of God, if we have doubts about the, the promises of God, if we have doubts about the sufficiency of God, we will fail ultimately in what He is calling us to do. We have to have a better rock confidence in God Himself. You can't go in doubt, nor can you go in sin. I want you to look at verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and, plot twist, sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, if you're saying, what? (laughs) Uh, You're not alone. You're not alone. Those verses are universally recognized as some of the most difficult to properly translate. The Hebrew's foggy. And the most difficult to understand verses, not just in the Old Testament, but really in all of the Bible. I will not go into the details of their difficulty, but PhD students love them because they provide endless fodder for speculative dissertations. But the bottom line is that there's just so much here that we can never know about these verses, because the details are almost non-existent. So, we have to make our best guesses based on contextual clues about what is actually going on. And here's my best guess at all of this. God intercepts Moses on his way back to Egypt to execute him for his failure to circumcise his son. And only quick action by Moses' wife spares his life. Some assumptions we're making there is that Moses knew that he should have, and he hadn't. The reason that we can make that speculative jump is because Zipporah immediately knows what to do, and Moses is spared. So we, we think that. I think that's probably the best answer as to what happens. And lest any of you think that that's a wild overreaction on God's part, you must understand the spiritual significance of circumcision for the Jewish people. Going all the way back to Abraham, God had commanded that every Jewish boy be circumcised on the eighth day of his life as a physical sign that not just the boy, but, but all the boy represented, the future of Israel, the nation of Israel, belonged to God. And it was symbolic in, in a couple of ways. First, we need to remember that Abraham was 99 years old when he was told that he and every Jewish male after him must be circumcised. But if you're familiar with the trajectory of Abraham's life, you understand at that time there were no males after him. He and Sarah were childless. So Abraham at 99 obeyed and it was only after he was circumcised that the long-promised son, Isaac, was born to him and Sarah. Now here's the significance. Circumcision is not unique to the Jewish people now or then. It was practiced by many other cultures. But in most other cultures, circumcision takes place at puberty, which signals sexual maturity. But for the Jews, circumcision reminded them of the miraculous circumstances by which God fathered them. So it was a physical sign made on the boy while he's an infant, not at puberty, to remind the people of Israel that they owed their entire existence to God. But circumcision also rec- uh, represented the, the removal of sin. We see this when the men of Israel are circumcised after leaving the wilderness and coming into the promised land in mass, with God saying the circumcision represented the. Removal of the sin from the wilderness. So it's a physical sign essentially representing two things that the people of Israel owe their entire existence to God and that they are called to be holy, that they belong to God and are owned by Him, and that they are set apart for His service. So Moses' neglect of this practice, again, we think it's pretty clear that he knew it was something that should have been done. Moses' neglect of this practice in his own body, as, as well perhaps, was a neglect that caused God to move to execute him. It was willful, open, unrepentant sin. Now as admittedly strange to all of our eyes and ears, as this little three-verse episode is, the takeaway is simple. Listen to me very closely. This is something everybody can get. God won't use us if we are in open and unrepentant rebellion against Him. So, before you go and attempt great things for God in obedience to God, make sure that your heart is right. Make sure that you're in a position to go. And I, I think that the reason so many of us feel as if we're not doing anything for God or that God has nothing that He wants from us is because there are areas of our lives where we harbor open rebellion and an unrepentant heart. I have have lived long enough to to watch the loosening of the moral boundaries of the American church, things that we used to say um, and feel shamed about saying, words that would come out of our mouths, uh, uh, the the things that we would take in for entertainment, uh, used to... Say, well, you can't do that and follow Jesus. And now we ingest those things and we do those things and we call it grace. God doesn't care about my holiness. That's what grace means to us now. And it's not just the things we say, it's obviously a whole host of different things where we just lower the boundaries and we think that what God is, is, is wanting of us is just to show up and to say nice words and loving words to Him and we don't have to be holy anymore. And then we say, why is the church so powerless? And why am I so powerless? It's because God won't go with us and we can't go in His name and expect anything transcendent to come of it if we go in sin. Now, this is not to say that we must be sinless before we can be used by God. If that were the case, you wouldn't have a preacher this morning. You wouldn't have had anybody lead you in worship this morning. You wouldn't have anybody able to shepherd you uh, in our elders this morning or serve you in our deacons or teach you in Sunday school. If sinlessness was what was being demanded here, none of us would be able to do anything. The takeaway here isn't that we can't go and do for God only if we're sinless. The takeaway here is that we can't go and be nonchalant about our sins. We can't go and just blow it off. Well, boys will be boys and girls will be girls and it's all good. We can't. We can't do that. We have to, by God's grace, hate our sin and work in His power to eradicate our sin. And only then can you go. Don't get it reversed. I've had people in deep, deep sin tell me before that they feel like the way that they could eradicate that sin. I kid you not. Go on a mission trip and tell people about Jesus. And in my own delicate, soft, mild-mannered little way, (laughs) I said, you've got no business doing anything in Jesus' name with that sin in your life. You do not serve your way out of sin. You repent your way out of sin. And if you harbor a nonchalant attitude about the sin in your life, if you're not wrestling it like a bear every day by the grace of Jesus Christ in your life, if you don't hate it, you'll never be used the way you want to be used by God. So you can't go in doubt, you can't go in sin, but this last thing which is so encouraging, you can't go alone. You can't go alone. Look at verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he w- went and, and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs. That he had commanded him to do. As promised in Moses' doubts, I'm not a good speaker, I I can't go alone. God connected Moses with Aaron and here we see that happen. Moses has been filled with self-doubt but Aaron's presence reminded him God's not expecting him to go by himself. He's not going alone. And not only that, the two of them we see were not alone either. Look at verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of the people of Israel back in Egypt together, and and Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. There's a beautiful reciprocity here. Aaron And Moses encouraged the people, but they are in turn encouraged by the faithfulness of the people. It is a beautiful picture of how God intends for His people to passionately follow Him in community. Three years ago today was the first of 13 Sundays that we couldn't meet together. And it's been a long, slow slog back to that starting point, and there's a lot that was lost, and a lot that we grieve, and a lot that we debate, but the biggest thing that we lost is our understanding that church means community. It means being together, and, and one of the biggest tricks that Satan has played on the American church is after weeks of meeting online, people thought, well, that's church. That's good. That's what I need. I don't need to actually be present and so now we have people who do not have valid medical reasons staying home thinking it just works. No it doesn't. It works if church is about consuming content. It works if you come to church to get a fill up like a quick trip. But it doesn't work if the church is going to have power and if you're going to have power. And if you're going to be able to do what God has called you to do, God has meant for us to not live in isolation, but to live in full obedience obedience to His command by being together, by partnering with others. So we're all called to go. Some of us are going to have more visible platforms of obedience than others, but we're all called to go and if we've learned anything today we've learned that we better live in a state of constant preparedness to answer God's call so reflecting back on what we've learned what should we be doing well we should remember that we can't go in doubt and the cure for doubt is not bravado Or having all of the details in front of you. The cure for doubt is God Himself. By feasting on His abundance. And delighting in His goodness. And then remember you can't go and sin. And remember I said it doesn't mean that you've got to be sinless to go. But it does mean that you're aware of your sin. That you're fighting your sin by God's grace. And that you hate your sin. And then finally you can't go alone. God has given us His people to enable us to be faithful Together. So then, as we close, what can we do to live in a constant state of preparedness by addressing these issues of doubt and sin and togetherness? Well, at Blue Valley, as I've already mentioned, we have D groups. When I came to Blue Valley 16 years ago, and my goodness, where did the time go, but when I came to Blue Valley 16 years ago, I shared with the committee that brought me in that my ultimate goal was to have our people involved in small group discipleship beyond Sunday morning worship experiences and beyond Sunday school experiences that promoted connection with God and promoted connection with one another. And it's just been in these last few years under the excellent leadership of Pastor Jonathan campus pastor here at Antioch pastor Micah campus pastor at Ridgeview that these groups have become a reality now here's what they're not they aren't Bible studies in the sense that you're reading a book together about the Bible they aren't regularly scheduled coffees and breakfast with your friends nor are they groups where you simply share trivia about your life with one another they are a Bible-focused, they are accountability-rooted, relationship-driven groups whose sole purpose it is to help each other become more like Jesus and then to go into the world in His name and serve Him. We've got dozens of them now going at Blue Valley, but if you are expecting the traditional suburban spoon-fed, here's your ready-made program, go you're going to be disappointed. If you're saying, that's interesting to me, I'm going to give them my name so that they'll pair me with someone, you're going to be disappointed. Here's how a D group gets started. If you're interested, you get three to five others. We don't find them for you. You've got your relationships. You get three to five Uh, people together. And then, it's really this simple from that point. You go to our website. At our website, on the front page, over uh, over to the right, there's a little pull-down that says Ministries. Hit that. It drops down to Adult Ministries. Hit that. It takes you to the Adult Ministry landing page. Over to the right, at the bottom, it says, D-Group Registration and Resources. Click on that. Everything you need to do a D-Group, right there to download. And then you can register your group as meeting. You say, Why do we need to register? So that we can know how to pray for you. And also, because when you have been in there 18 months and are just loving the goodness of it, we can go, It's time to shoe. It's time for you to go find others. And it's time for you to do this again with a new group of people. We're not forming your group for you, we're not giving you a curriculum. You bring your Bible, we'll give you guidance as to what to do, and the rest is up to you. And the result, if you talk to people who have been in deep groups, men and women on both campuses, is a freshness in their walk with Jesus that they haven't experienced maybe ever. And one of the things that I've noticed as the one who has to stand before this campus and preach each and every week is that there's so many who have been through it now that it's easier to preach to you than it's ever been in 16 years. Because we're not cold starting the world. When we walk in here on Sunday morning, people are ready. People are ready to hear the Word of God. People are ready to be obedient to the Word of God. Bottom line is all of the issues, doubt, sin, togetherness are solved when you are serious-minded and in pursuit of a deep and abiding relationship with the God who calls all of us to Himself. So let this be the burning bush moment today for you where God calls you to go and feeds you himself so you can.